Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, a shocker, I'm sure. We'll talk with Anatole Levin about how it's sort of feeling like the run-up to World War I, and then Jairus Banaji will talk about the Adani scandal and what it tells us about the political economy of India. Are we stumbling towards world war or something like it? There seems to be very little interest in trying to negotiate an end to the conflict in Ukraine. On the contrary, there's a bit of a competition developing to see who can be the most hawkish. What arms should we send next? Should we settle merely with pushing Russia out of Ukraine, or should we press on until it collapses? And what about U.S. relations with China, where the rhetoric grows more heated by the day? Sometimes it seems like our political class wants to go to war with both countries at once. To address those questions, I turned, as I often do, to Anatole Levin. In the 1980s and 90s, Anatole covered the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the wars in Afghanistan, Chechnya, and the Southern Caucasus for the Financial Times and the Times of London. He's now a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. Anatole Levin. I've seen uh, people in the last uh, week or so uh, making analogies to feeling like it's early 1914. Uh, you getting at that feeling? Yes, um, to a degree. I mean, the Biden administration is still trying to keep America and NATO out of direct war with Russia. But clearly, they've done a number of things which, if done to the United States, probably would have us in a war by now. There is also the uh, growing and growing confrontation between the US and China. So, I mean, I don't think we're in July 1914 yet, but it's not too hard to see how we could get there. Yeah, I want to speak about China in a little bit, but um, let's talk about Ukraine for a moment. I mean, we keep seeing these stories of massive Russian casualties. The British defense minister said 97% of Russian forces, which would mean over 300,000 men, are in Ukraine now. That sounds a little hard to believe, but do we really have a clear picture of what's going on there at all? Well, we don't have an exact picture, no. Of course, it must be remembered that U.S. intelligence has said that Ukrainian casualties have been roughly the same as the Russians, uh, from, of course, a much smaller population. So, I mean, this has been a a very bloody war on both sides. But um, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that, uh, especially in the first months, the Russian forces, and especially, of course, the their best forces, which they used at the start of the war, have suffered very badly indeed. As a result, Russia is now, it seems, making very slow progress at all on the ground in um, in eastern Ukraine, so that you know, for months now, people have been talking about uh, another analogy to the First World War, which is, of course, the, um, the situation on the Western Front from 1914 to 1918, when both sides were bogged down in a war of attrition in the trenches with very, very heavy casualties on both sides. Yeah, I just looked up the casualties. I'd forgotten this. Nine million soldiers killed. Remarkable um, bloodletting. But it does seem like they're uh, reviving that style of warfare with human wave attacks and blasting each other. And uh, it all seems absolutely pointless and horribly bloody. Yes. I mean, I mean, obviously, this war from Russia's point of view has been a, a complete disaster as well as a crime. And on the Ukrainian side, you have to ask, I mean, not just obviously now, but for years, even since 2014, why exactly Ukraine wants back Crimea and the eastern Donbass, uh, which are you know, heavily populated by Russians and Russian speakers, who by all reliable accounts do not want to return to, to Ukraine. So you know, the question is, what is Ukraine risking and losing in order to recover these territories? And what would it do with them if it got them back? Uh, but of course, it's become a, both a symbol of Ukrainian national pride and victory and, uh, you know, an attempt to impose such a crushing defeat on Russia that the Putin regime would fall and perhaps Russia would break up as a state, uh, which, of course, <laughs> on the other side is why the Russian regime is absolutely determined to fight on to hang on to what it's got. And Crimea particularly is not just symbolically for Russians, but uh, actually in strategic terms as well as the only real Russian port on on the Black Sea and therefore the only one with access to the Mediterranean. I mean, this isn't just a symbol of Russia as a great power. It is actually a key part of the reality of Russia as a great power. A great many Russians um, will uh, undergo considerable hardship and loss to maintain that status, as of course, 
um, many Americans would do for U.S. global primacy. Now, you said the Biden administration is holding back, not escalating as quickly as it might, but they are amping up the level of arms shipments. It just keeps getting to be more and more sophisticated, more and more deadly. What is the goal here? Do they want to beat Russia? You see hawkish voices in the U.S. and elsewhere saying we want Russia to break up as a state, as you, you mentioned. What is the point? What is this, the end game? There are obviously divisions within the Biden administration, as there are divisions within Europe, both within European countries and between them. And as you've said, there are ultra hardliners who actually do want to destroy Russia as a state. As far as one can make out, and from leaks, the majority uh, opinion in the Biden administration wants to impose enough of a defeat on Russia that Russia leaves all the territory that it has conquered since February of last year, which is essentially the land bridge between Russia and and, um, Crimea. And in return, the US would advocate a ceasefire in which Russia would not legally, this wouldn't be recognized, but would in practice hang on to Crimea and probably the eastern Donbass. And they want to give enough weapons to the Ukrainians to enable the Ukrainians to do that without the Ukrainians actually being able to attack Crimea and possibly trigger a nuclear war. But of course, that is a very, very delicate balancing act. Yeah, the term playing with fire comes to mind. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, how do you calibrate that? And how do you stop the Ukrainians if, you know, if the Ukrainians do achieve some smashing breakthrough with US weapons and then do what they say they're going to do, which is, you know, actually aim for everything? Mind you, I mean, whether even with US weapons, the Ukrainian army is capable of breaking through, we really are not clear about, just as you know, it seems unlikely that Russia can do more than, you know, incrementally capture maybe the whole of the Donbass. But the people who say that Russia has to be completely defeated or even destroyed uh, in in order to save an independent Ukraine, they are, well, let us be kind and say deceiving themselves, because that issue has been settled. I mean, unless the United States disappears from the world stage and all aid to Ukraine dries up, we know by now that the Russian army is simply incapable of capturing Kiev and overthrowing the Ukrainian state, or, you know, even I mean, since the Russians withdrew from their only bridgehead west of the Dnieper River, there's no realistic way in which they can capture the Ukrainian Black Sea coast either. So most of Ukraine uh, is now guaranteed its independence, thanks to the, the victories that the Ukrainians won. I mean, really, to the victories they won in the first weeks of the war. That was the decisive period. I mean, everything else since then has been battles for limited amounts of territory in the east and south. Do you see any outlines of a plausible peace deal? <laughs> I know in this world it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that people embrace it, but is there something that uh, could plausibly do to end this bloodletting? If the West had an objective view of this war and was prepared to push a rational peace settlement, then yes. Uh, and the obvious way to base this in the longer run, I mean, it's very it's difficult to get there because, of course, Else, the number of refugees, uh, but is a, a UN-conducted process uh, to do something which <laughs> remarkably few observers are calling for or even noticing, which is, for heaven's sake, to ask local people what they want, to have referenda under international supervision, asking the population uh, of the Donbass and Crimea uh, which country they want to be in, and the other Russian-occupied territories as well. Now, Of course, it would have to be conducted by the United Nations with full guarantees. But, you know, one's assumption is that the the areas that have traditionally identified with Russia and which have, one must remember, been either bombarded or blockaded by Ukraine ever since 2014 would probably vote to stay with Russia. And the areas that Russia has invaded and bombarded since last February would vote to return to to Ukraine. Um, I mean, that is, as far as I can see, the only legitimate basis for a long-term solution. I mean, it would take a long time to get there, but, you know, we, we have precedents and mechanisms, um, you know, United Nations peacekeeping forces, demilitarized zones, international supervision, and as I say, finally, UN-supervised referenda. Uh, but, you know, that, that would require, well, obviously, Russia would have to agree, but If Russia could actually get the legal transfer of the Donbass and Crimea, it could well be that that would be enough 
for Russia. But of course, the West would have to agree to put pressure on Ukraine to abandon limited amounts of territory, which at the moment, nobody is willing to do. These weapons they've been sending, they're not like rifles you can just pick up and shoot them. They're complicated, require a lot of training, require a lot of maintenance. That means U.S. forces or something like that will have to be on the ground, right? Um, is that uh, possibly quite dangerous? Well, yes. And then you know, we've heard in um, just in the past week the proposal to you know actually uh, have U.S. forces directly training Ukrainian, well, they're sort of described as scouts, basically. But, you know, the line between a scout and a saboteur is a very, a very, very thin one. Um, and yes, I mean, the US is getting uh, more and more stuck in on the ground. And we don't know where that will lead. Because, you know, on the one hand, if US troops are killed, that will be another cause of you know, escalation on the American side. I mean, on the other hand, if these forces as clearly many Ukrainians, and very understandably, I have to say, would like to do, start extending their activities into Russia itself, then that will undoubtedly be another motive for Russia to escalate. So you see, it's not that we're going to suddenly go straight to nuclear war, but it's so easy to draw a scenario in which one thing leads to another, leads to another, and then eventually we, we fall over the edge. I'm speaking with Anatole Levin, a fellow at the Quincy Institute. The forces of restraint on both sides seem to be missing. Well, the Russians have, I think, had a degree of restraint simply, as you might say, beaten into them. I don't know a single Russian observer who, who I regard as, as sane, who thinks now in private that Russia can, can possibly capture Kiev. Um, they recognize that most of Ukraine is, um, is lost. But that's not the hope with which Putin began the war. But military reality is military reality. If something is impossible, it's impossible. So I think the, the Russians, you know, compared to well, the Russian regime, compared to its position a year ago, has reduced and modified its goals. It's had to. But the question is, what are our goals? Do we know? I mean, is there an answer to that question? The key problem is that the, the Biden administration has not formulated, really, its key goals. And it hasn't really linked them, at least not in a way that I find reassuring, to its, uh, its military strategy in Ukraine. And meanwhile, of course, you have powerful forces in Washington and in parts of Europe, in Britain, and of course, in Eastern Europe, a traditional hatred of Russia, who are pressing for total victory. So the Biden administration will, does need to develop a clear line and stick to it. But I guess there, there are just so many uh, divisions within the U.S. elite uh, on, on this question that uh, it's kind of hard to see how they're going to come up with one. Well, yes. And of course, you know, if there is going to be a, a ceasefire, let alone a peace settlement, then at some stage, unless we're going to run a really serious risk of nuclear annihilation, it will be necessary to tell the Ukrainians to stop. And we've had indications, hints, some fairly heavy hints, you know, for example, from General Milley saying um, just yesterday that Ukraine has already won great victories, which by implication is, look, you don't need much more than this. Uh, but to actually come out uh, publicly and tell the Ukrainians to stop uh, would require considerable moral courage on the part of the Biden administration. And, you know, given the attacks to which they would be subjected, and, you know, moral courage is not the chief distinguishing feature, I would say, of the Western political elites. No, certainly not. Um, okay, so China. Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York, was on uh, local radio the other day claiming that Xi Jinping wants a world war, has been planning for it for years, uh, wants to defeat the U.S., and we have to start acting as if that's the reality. What in God's name is going on? I mean, it does seem almost like uh, people in senior positions in the U.S. government who really are looking to something like war with China. Well, I mean, I don't think they exactly want war with China, but they are progressively trapping themselves in rhetoric, particularly about Taiwan and about the supposedly, you know, megalomaniac and apocalyptic Chinese goals, um, which, you know, do risk bringing that about. This is the anniversary of um, George Kennan's long telegram uh, of 1946. And, you know, I'm just reading a new biography of him. And it's very striking how, you know, Kennan introduced the, the, the plan for the containment of the Soviet Union, but, you know, containing it within its then 
waters in Eastern Europe. And Kennan was horrified to find the way in which this was turned into a, a militarized and globalized struggle. And that is exactly what we see today. And of course, it then also becomes a bidding war within Washington, not just political party against political party, but, you know, as with this latest comment, which has no basis in evidence, um, you know, it becomes a bidding war between individual politicians to show who is tougher, who is more hawkish, who will give more money to the military. There is a difference, of course, also that uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, Soviet communism genuinely was still a dynamic ideology with great appeal in what we used to call the third world. And there was a genuine competition between America and its allies and Soviet communism to see who would take over the collapsing British and French empires. Well, there is nothing like that in Chinese strategy today. China is not a revolutionary power. There is no sign whatsoever, and I mean no sign whatsoever, of China trying to bring about revolutions or even coups in in other countries. Outside what America would call its own backyard in East Asia, China has in fact pursued an extremely cautious policy. China has kept out of the Middle East. China is not developing military bases outside China. It has one. I mean, the US has, what, 600? You are seeing the grotesque exaggeration uh, of Chinese uh, aggressiveness um, and ambition with uh, really, I mean, really, really strong parallels with the the Cold War, but with much less justification. And of course, the the result, as we saw in the Cold War, something that people have totally forgotten about now, it seems, age, uh, is that if you portray the the enemy in these apocalyptic terms, what do you end up doing? Well, you end up deciding uh, that there is a domino effect, that America has to fight Chinese influence everywhere in the world, and eventually you stumble into something like Vietnam. Behind all this, if I put on my Freudian cap here for a moment, um, it, it seems like people in Washington are having a hard time coping with U.S. relative decline. The political prestige and uh, economic preeminence all eroding, U.S. influence eroding. Um, China, like it or not, um, is emerging as a really serious economic rival to the U.S. is no longer the subordinate assembler of uh, printed circuit boards, but is now really developing its own advanced technology. What do you see as underlying this outbreak of extreme hawkishness among so much of the U.S. elite? Well, I think it's two things. It's it's it is that for a while, but when you think about it, it was a very short while from about 1989 to when you know, Iraq started going badly wrong in 2004, 2005. You know, America genuinely was the global hegemon, and many people can't simply cannot bear to give that up because actually, I mean, if you think about it, if you go back to 1988 or even you know after that, the United States behind its existing alliance systems, and that, by the way, now includes in in Europe, the new members of NATO in Eastern Europe, is enormously safe. There is no threat to the American homeland, I mean, except obviously from nuclear war. But uh, And Russia has proved in Ukraine that it is simply not capable militarily of attacking NATO. And in East Asia, People talk about how China wants to drive America out of East Asia completely and replace America. That is simply not physically possible. As long as Japan, South Korea, Australia and the Philippines want America to be there. For China to to drive America out of East Asia, China would have to eliminate the American and Japanese navies and invade Japan in order to shut down the American bases at uh, in Okinawa and Yokosuka. Now, that is just not, I mean, that's beyond fantasy. It's beyond paranoia. It simply cannot be done, nor is the, the slightest evidence that China has any plans to do this. This is all about Taiwan, basically. And that is, a, I mean, that is admittedly a very, very difficult question. But because the overall American position in East Asia is in no danger, I mean, that should be a strong incentive to America to basically try to do what, after all, it's been doing for the past 40 years, which is kick the Taiwan issue down the road. Now, admittedly, of course, this means sharing influence with China in East Asia. But, you know, America cannot, of course, be the unilateral 
hegemon anymore. Uh, but um, you know, <laughs> let's remember China. You know, hasn't been uh, the leading power in East Asia for much more than the past two thousand years. How long has America been the leading power in East Asia? I mean, there is a degree of a historicism um, about this, which is terrifying. I mean, the other thing I, I'd say is that it is clear that um, liberal democracy in our societies uh, is in danger, but it's in danger for domestic reasons. The growth of extremism and polarization, both in America and in parts of Europe, and in my own country, Britain, the, the appalling decline of standards of governance and public honesty, these are all for internal reasons, you know, reasons that we've endlessly debated, but most of which we know very well. They have nothing to do with some global alliance of autocracies. You know, if people are voting for Trump, it is for very American reasons. If people in France are voting for Le Pen, it's for French reasons. You know, but of course, many people, I suppose one has to say the liberal mainstream, have convinced themselves that you know, there is this link. But also I fear many of them, whether deliberately or unconsciously, think that they can undermine their domestic enemies by accusing them of of being Russian or Chinese agents. Well, there's a word for that. It's called McCarthyism, and it has never been seen as a liberal word. I was Anatole Levin, Senior Research Fellow on Russia and Europe at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News, back after a musical break. some of Sinatra Drive Breakdown from the new album by Yola Tengo. In late January, Hindenburg Research, which describes itself as specializing in forensic financial research, released a report asserting that the Adani Group, a huge Indian conglomerate headed by Agathom Adani, has engaged in a brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud scheme over the course of decades, to quote Hindenburg's own summary. Quoting Hindenburg again, Adani family members allegedly cooperated to create offshore shell entities in tax haven jurisdictions like Mauritius, the UAE, and the Caribbean islands, generating forged import-export documentation in an apparent effort to generate fake or illegitimate turnover and to siphon money from the listed companies. The value of Adani stock collapsed, and Gautam himself, worth $124 billion just before the Hindenburg report's release, is now down to a mere $50 billion. Adani is extremely close to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, a vicious Hindu supremacist whose party, the BJP, is one of the oldest fascist parties in the world. To explore this nexus in the history and structure of Indian capital more generally, we're joined by Jaris Banaji. He's a professor in the Department of Development Studies at SOAS, the University of London. SOAS's full name is the School of Oriental and African Studies, but the full name is now an embarrassment, so the acronym has taken over. Banaji's article on Adani and his colleagues and their relationship to Modi appeared on the website Phenomenal World in December, before the Hindenburg Report was released, but it makes excellent background for what's going on now. We recorded this interview on February 10th. Adani Group's stock had rallied in the days leading up to the interview, but they've largely given up those gains and the stock price is now half what it was a month ago. And with it, Gautam Adani's personal wealth has taken the biggest hit in the history of wealth. Jairus Banaji. The early days after Indian independence, uh, the economic model was uh, one of very state-sponsored capitalism, right? Can you describe that model and then uh, say something about what happened to it? Well, there was a, a sort of division, not of labor, but of capital, so to speak, between the state and private capital, right? Private business. Capital-intensive projects with long gestation periods would be handled by the state. Private businesses didn't have that scale of resources, and the rest would be left to private capital. 
So it was a kind of neat division where neither side intruded on the other. The public sector established a, a fair degree of control over the commanding heights, so to speak. He, that language was actually being used by Nehru's economic advisor, Mahalan Obis, in the 1950s. They were influenced by the Soviet economic debate of the 1920s. The idea was that the state would establish control over these key sectors of the economy, and the rest would be left to private business. So that was the essential model. And of course, Matic called it a, a mixed economy, and it was a variant of the mixed economy, which seemed to work well until it began to break down. When did it start breaking down? By the 70s, I think the rate of public investment had declined quite sharply. And the sort of dynamism that was built into this model, therefore weakened considerably. And that led to a prolonged recession in Indian business. Namely, for the next 15 years, you didn't have substantial private investment, with the exception of some foreign companies coming in. Until in the 1980s, they began to reorganize the priorities of the political economy and, and decide that they should actually start modernizing and expanding the private sector and allow it to grow. And so that the 80s was the period of transition. So I'd say basically the whole of the 1970s was when you saw a dramatic fall in public investment. And come the 80s, the state decided that the private sector had to grow. So it did its best to try and encourage that process. And then by the 90s, of course, the economy was thrown open in the so-called economic reforms of 91. With the 80s came the rise of what you call the new capitalists. Who were they? Who financed them? Where did they come from? The epitome of this of this layer of new capital was essentially a guy called Dhirubhai Ambani, who's the father of Mukesh Ambani and Anil Ambani, uh, the two brothers who began to squabble over who would control the gas reserves in the Bay of Bengal, right? When the gas was thrown open to private capital uh, in the 2000s, there was this huge conflict between the two brothers as to who who actually had control over those reserves. And in the end, the elder brother Mukesh Ambani won in a court battle. But Dhirubhai was the guy who actually started Reliance Industries. He began as a trader. He had been employed by Besse, B-E-S-S-E. It was an Aden-based large merchant enterprise. Uh, and Dhirubhai was an employee, nothing more than an employee of uh, Antonin Besse. He came back to Bombay with some savings from Aden. Eventually, he went into textiles and began to build very systematically what became a kind of vertically integrated empire by the 90s. I mean, a more profoundly vertically integrated than anything else that India had seen at the time. So basically from synthetic textiles, he went into petrochemicals. From petrochemicals, he went into oil refining. Now, Dhirubhai died in the first decade of the new millennium. He didn't actually have a will. Basically, he didn't want to draft a will because anything that he drafted would spark a conflict. And so he died intestate. And that was part of the problem, which is that the Ambani's had to allocate these different businesses between the two sons. And Mukesh got the lion's share. And Anil Ambani, his younger brother, fought, went up all the way to the Supreme Court to try and get some control over the more lucrative kind of gas business. So Dhirubhai Ambani epitomizes the, this layer of new capital. He comes back to Bombay in the 70s, starts systematically building his corporate empire in the 1980s using political patronage. Indira Gandhi was quite close to Dhirubhai and vice versa. He actually financed the Congress party in one of the key election campaigns at the end of the 70s. This idea that you can build political patronage into the accumulation of capital by allowing you to defeat competitors. He fought terrific battles with various competitors. One guy called Nasli Wadia from this other layer of capital, the older kind of Parsi businesses and so on, was at the receiving end of some of Dhirubhai's fighting tactics. And um, he essentially marginalized Wadia in the textile business. Dhirubhai knew how to use his political connections and did so quite systematically. Next to him, we have another range of kind of similarly placed tycoons emerging, mostly in the late 80s and 90s. People like the Ruyas, this guy who runs Vedanta, Anil Agarwal, then Lakshmi Mittal, etc. So basically a whole swathe of capital, which is essentially a product of the late 80s and 90s. And Adani belongs to that milieu, right? The kind of businesses that begin to grow in the late 80s and then prosper in the 90s. At the beginning of your piece, you quote a journalist, I can't remember his name, but uh, you quote a journalist who makes a distinction between old-style crony capitalism, which is uh, just business people who get favors bestowed upon them by the state, to something much more deeply systematic and organic, uh, this link between state power, political connections, and capital accumulation. This is that model, right? These people whose rise depended on uh, their political connections. 
Yeah, the idea was that managing politics was, an, if you like, a further sector of, of business management. Basically, you had to be able to peddle influence was the expression used, right? Peddle influence, which means that you had to have contacts in the ministries at sufficiently high levels to be able to influence public policy regarding investment in key sectors, infrastructure sectors, and so on. Dhirubhai certainly did that par excellence. He knew how to influence the policy in the in the oil ministry, in the petroleum ministry, even to the extent of being able to get inside information on what they were planning to do, what whether there were going to be changes of policy, what those changes of policy were, and so on. This new culture of capitalism where influence peddling and the management of politics and so on become central to your ability to compete with other businesses and so on, I think is is essentially a product of the 90s. The Ambani's are very successful at this. And in an interview that Mukesh Ambani gave to the New York Times, he actually said that it was his brother, Anil Ambani, who handled this side of the business, namely all the political patronage and the, the more corrupt side of the business, in a sense, was being handled by Anil Ambani. And when Ambani read this interview, he was quite shocked, namely when the brother, younger brother read this interview and threatened legal action for saying things like that openly. These tycoons uh, really borrowed quite heavily, um, often from the state banks, right? And they ended up with quite a large amount of debt. It's not true of all sectors of, of big business in India. The, the older ones were, by and large, more wary about excessive borrowings and so on. The point is that the international capital market was thrown open to Indian business. And uh, and again, the Reliance Group, that's the Ambani's, did this very successfully. But those private businesses which were in asset-heavy sectors and capital-intensive infrastructure sectors, because the infrastructure was now being thrown open to private capital, they were particularly dependent, not just on political favors and contact with leading political elements and so on, but they were also dependent on the state banks, on the state-owned banks, on the public sector. And they were the ones who borrowed heavily. So if you look at this list that Credit Suisse compiled in 2012, a guy called Ashish Gupta compiled a list of the 10 most heavily indebted corporate groups in India. Almost all of them were major players in infrastructure. You know, and they had to be because because it was infrastructure that required all the money up front, so to speak, and the and the returns wouldn't come for a long time. So it was it was an, in a sense a mismatch between liabilities and, and 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 revenue and so on was built into this model. Now Adani was one of those ten, but of those ten, seven actually went bust in the kind of slowdown that spread through the Indian economy from 2011 onwards. So it was a remarkably accurate report. Of the three who didn't go bust, Adani was one of those three, right? Of course, he's in the headlines now. Um, a New York-based investment firm put out a report a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, the corporate structures are really opaque and is really just a gigantic accounting fraud. The market's freaked out, and uh, he lost, what, $100 billion in net worth practically overnight. What's going on with him? Well, the story with Adani is that he starts typically as a trader in the 1980s and then gets a big break when Modi becomes the chief minister of Gujarat and gives him large amounts of land at concessional rates, which no other corporate group was getting, right? And he builds this port called Mundra Port, and he integrates that with a one of those SEZs, right? Those export processing zones and so on. Adani's expansion can be broken into two phases. The first is when he's essentially operating out of Gujarat with Modi as the chief minister of the state, right? So for the entire period from 2002 to 2014, sees him expanding something like 20 times, right? And then again, from 2014 down to 2020-22, there's another expansion of 20 times, so to speak. But this time, Modi is actually the prime minister of the country. He's moved out of Gujarat. And the big difference between these two phases is that Adani himself had only one listed firm in the first phase of expansion. He now has seven listed firms in the second phase of expansion. And he's diversified into all sorts of other sectors still largely within the infrastructure, like, for example, from ports, he goes to airports, and then he diversifies into power in a big way, into coal, and then, of course, even further than that, into things like renewable energy and so on. That's, so all of these diversifications come in phase two of his expansion, which is essentially from 2014, when Modi becomes the prime minister, down to, down to today, effectively. All of this is debt-fueled, vast amounts of debt. Not only do the agencies like Credit Suisse and so on flag concerns about this because it's entirely debt-fueled, but when they do publish reports which are critical of the group, Adani hits back and gets them to tone down the, the report because anything like that will immediately have an effect on his share prices. Now, what the Hindenburg report actually says 
it's flagging the traditional kind of concern that Credit Suisse, et cetera, have about leverage, which is that this is a hugely over-leveraged group. The second area is, of course, this vast network of offshore entities that the report you know, constantly highlights and foregrounds. Most of the latter part of the report is about how Vinod Adani, that's the older brother of Gautam Adani, has set up a, a huge sprawling kind of offshore network which runs all the way from the Caribbean to Singapore via places like Cyprus and Mauritius. And I think the report doesn't actually go far enough. It's caused an absolute outrage in India. It's caused a huge flutter in the markets and it's caused chaos and turmoil in parliament. But the report doesn't go far enough in the sense that a whole part of this offshore network is simply ignored. Namely, the Caribbean end of it is not highlighted sufficiently. Strangely enough, there's only one passing reference to the kind of ultimate holding company that controls all Adani businesses, which is something called Atulia Resources, which is based in the Caribbean. When they come to discussing the offshore entities, they're mainly discussing Mauritius. And they could have gone much further if they'd looked at the stuff that the Australian journalists were publishing around 2017. Why this is important is that in both Singapore and the Caribbean, it's his elder brother Vinod Adani who's the crucial figure. When news of this broke in the Indian papers around 2017-18, Gautam Adani's defense, that's the, the, the main Adani that we're talking about, the guy who runs the Adani empire here in India, was that his brother has nothing to do with his businesses. And that's not true. That can be shown to be not true. They even desperately tried to change his name. So he would no longer be called Adani, he would be called Shah. In the Panama Papers and in these various kind of leaks that the ICIJ have highlighted, he turns up with two different names because he's not very sure which name he should use. But he himself is normally based in Dubai. But Vinod Adani is very much part of the mainstream businesses. He's not extraneous to it. And this was simply a PR stunt on, on the part of Gautam Adani to say that his brother has nothing to do with his businesses. But if, for example, the research team at Hindenburg had actually looked at the Singapore end of the business, they would have found that actually that is what is in charge of the Australian projects. All the solar power projects and so on that Adani is going into, all of that is, is controlled from Singapore and the Singapore entity itself is controlled from the, from the Caribbean. The Singapore company is called Global Renewable Energy Holding. It's very much part of the mainstream business of Gautam Adani because it is directly in charge of the solar power projects in Australia. But it is itself controlled by a whole chain of offshore entities or shell companies, which can ultimately be traced to the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands. So it's a kind of elaborate network. Then in India itself, the Directorate of Revenue Intelligence was conducting an investigation in, into the way transfer pricing was taking place in terms of the import of capital equipment for Adani's Maharashtra power project. And all the equipment, the heavy equipment was being imported from South Korea and China, but at inflated prices. And the surplus was being routed via Dubai into, I think it was the Seychelles or one of his shells there. They began an investigation into over-invoicing of capital imports for the power project in Maharashtra. When Modi came to power at the center, that investigation was shut down. If they'd been allowed to carry on, they would have revealed quite a bit about how he operates. What takes place is that Adani money goes into these shell companies in Mauritius, and then it's round-tripped back into his enterprises in India just to ramp up share prices. It's just price rigging. It's nothing more than price rigging. I'm speaking with the political economist, Jairus Banaji. What about the politics of this? A lot of these new capitalists are very tight with Modi. What is the relationship between this class, Adani in particular, and the BJP and Modi? Yeah, well, I suspect the, the key thing is political finance, because Modi was desperate to pass a scheme called the Electoral Bond Scheme that was eventually passed in 2018, I think. Despite the objection of Parliament, despite the objection of the Reserve Bank of India, the Reserve Bank of India said, a scheme like this will make it seem as if we, that's the Central Bank of India, is actually laundering money. The distinctive feature of the scheme is that the, the source of the donation is anonymous. No one will know who the actual donor is. Uh, there's an alphanumeric code, which only the Reserve Bank, top, the top parts of the Reserve Bank will, will be able to be privy to. And that can be communicated to the political leadership, the people at the top. So in order to know who's actually made this fabulous donation of whatever it is, maybe 20 or 30 million dollars, who's the actual donor. But no one else, and certainly not the public, will get to know who the donors are. I suspect this narrow or charmed circle of capitalists that we call the new capitalists, people like... Uh, 
Anil Agarwal of the Vedanta Group, uh, who's just announced a, a massive uh, semiconductor project in Gujarat, right? A huge project in collaboration with a Taiwanese firm, etc. Or Adani himself or the Ambani's and so on. This charmed inner circle of capitalists, if you like, are major donors to the BJP through the electoral bond scheme. But since anonymity is a feature of that scheme, you can never prove this unless there's a, a kind of whistleblower who's willing to leak information. You'll never get to know what the scale of donations is, who the main donors are, and so on. In 2007, SEBI, that's the Securities and Exchange Board of India, that's the, the main market regulator corresponding to the SEC in the US, right? SEBI passed a ruling which implicated Gautam Adani and several companies of his in what was called the Ketan Parikh scam. It was a huge stock market scam at the time. And there was a parliamentary probe into that scam. Luckily, we have we have a report uh, which circulates on the net as to what the JPC, that's the Joint Parliamentary Committee, said about the Ketan Parikh scam. On the strength of that investigation, SEBI indicted Adani as deeply implicated in the scam. It's something that Modi chose to ignore completely. On the contrary, uh, Modi cultivated relationships with Adani and so that the whole thing developed further. You know, you would think that, okay, fine. I mean, you know, the guy is in implicated in a major scam, that he would establish a degree of distance. But on the contrary, the opposite seems to have happened. And so he has turned a blind eye, a very systematic blind eye, to the malfeasance that is characteristic of the Adani group, that he, do, he just doesn't pursue, pursue them. Whereas the enforcement directorate, which is the main prosecuting agency in economic offenses and so on, is systematically used against his political opponents. The entire opposition is is threatened by use of the enforcement directorate, not Adani. Adani's never been touched by the enforcement directorate. I suspect what endears Modi to these people is not just the social aspect of the kind of company he keeps, but the kind of hard reality that they're actually major, major funders or major donors behind the BJP's campaign finance. Do Adani and people like him share the politics of the BJP, the Hindu nationalism, or is it just a relationship of convenience? They do it in different ways. Obviously, they're not crudely communal and so on. But the very fact that they're so cozy with this government shows that they have no particular anxieties about its politics and about the more rabid and ultra-nationalist parts of its of its politics and its ideology. His expansion, phenomenal as it was in the 2000s and the, and the 2010s, was entirely due to the patronage he enjoyed, which wasn't extended to all and sundry. I mean, it's something that he enjoyed uh, as a special favor for some reason. This crisis, which has been quite remarkable, collapse in fortunes, is this uh, curtains for him or is he, you think he's going to come back from it? Some of the companies' shares kind of rallied in the last day or two. And then again, they've fallen because the MSCI has decided that they're going to not list those shareholdings which seem to be suspect. You know, Hindenburg puts a lot of emphasis on the shell companies subscribing to the shares of his companies and so on. They've decided that not all of that ostensible free float of 25% is actually truthfully a free float. So they've decided that they're going to reduce the weightage of many of these companies. Those companies, the Adani companies, are tightly held. He's got at least 74 to 5% ownership in them. He wants more because he uses these shell companies in Mauritius to funnel money into the main operating companies in order to boost his own control over those companies. I'm not sure why he's so obsessed with control, but that's what effectively is happening. That's what the Hindenburg report is highlighting, these circular trades which are being used to um, boost his, his stock. But as a result, today the MSCI is reported as saying that they're going to reduce the weightage of Anani companies, and that led to a fall in the Indian market. It's anyone's guess what's going to happen if, for some reason, Modi decides to bail him out. Then it's like almost becomes like a Ponzi scheme, right? Today was an, a huge investor summit, a global investor summit in Lucknow, which is a, a major city in UP. The states compete for investment. And so as part of that competition for investment, they tend to hold these global invest, investor summits. And UP is a major state. It's the largest state in India. It's run by the BJP. And they had their investor summit today. The entire elite turned up for that, the economic elite, but not Gautam Adani, which is, I think, very significant. It would have been inconceivable before this, this huge um, body blow that he received about whenever it was two weeks back and so on. It would have been inconceivable that he wouldn't have been on the, on the guest list. But he wasn't there today. And that's not because he's traveling. He's very much in India, but he wasn't there. I think the government is pissed off with him for having mismanaged this so badly. What I find staggering is that there's so much evidence about the offshore entities and the, and the money laundering network that they've simply tried to ignore it as much as possible. This is what the opposition parties in, 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 in parliament have now seized on. 
they go on and on about Adani Modi, Modi Adani, etc., and about the money laundering aspect of it. They are demanding a joint parliamentary probe, a joint JPC probe, or they want some retired judge to investigate on behalf of the Supreme Court. And in a speech that lasted anywhere between an hour to an hour and a half, two or three days back in the Lok Sabha, that's the main parliament, he didn't mention Adani once. There was not even a fleeting reference to the to the crisis. One would have thought there's this huge catastrophe unfolding with respect to one major corporate group, but he doesn't even make a passing reference to it. Now, it, this strikes me as very odd. It would be extraordinary in any other country. For example, when Enron collapsed in the US, surely the questions would have been raised about all this in Congress and uh, if there was a similar kind of you know major economic catastrophe or crisis in in the uk the house of commons would be debating it but here modi made no, no reference whatsoever to adani or to the or to the crisis now their line has been either that this is all a pack of lies namely what what's been said in the indenberg report which is a very hard line to sustain because there's enough evidence about the money laundering side of this and there are reports saying that this is a business which is hugely leveraged and that's dangerous you know his Debt equity ratios are way, way beyond anything that's acceptable in a sphere of their own, so to speak. They've chosen to ignore the money, money laundering aspect of it entirely because it would be too much of a gamble for them politically if they agreed to the demand for a JPC, that's a parliamentary probe, uh, into the allegations made in the Hindenburg report. If it was a, a well-conducted probe, it would reveal a hell of a lot, probably more than, more than Nathan Anderson and his team would know because, I mean, they're doing it here in the Indian market. A lot could come out. But of course, they've refused to refuse to accept this. I mean, so the politics of it, it's a terribly embarrassing moment for the BJP and for Modi. But what seems to be happening is that as all the election promises of 2014 are seen not to have been fulfilled, one by one, they've been not, not fulfilled, then the cult of Modi becomes even more intense and more fanatical. It's as if they're all rallying around their leader and so there were shouts of Modi, 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 chants like that in Parliament while all this was being debated or not debated. Rahul Gandhi raised the whole issue in a, in a speech of his own. Uh, large parts of his speech have been expunged from the parliamentary record, not allowed to enter the parliamentary record. It's a hugely embarrassing moment for them. And it's anyone's guess what's going to happen to Adani as such. If, for example, there is a default, much of the debt that he holds is international debt. It's denominated in foreign currency, either euros or dollars, right? If there is a default in the global bond market on Adani's part, he's finished. That would be the last chapter of this book if he defaults. Now, for example, recently what happened was that obviously with the value of his shares plummeting, then the coal margins are wider and he has to actually put more money into, into, into these things. He was forced to basically uh, put more money down and he pretended that he was actually paying back a loan. It's not paying back a loan. It's simply that the coal margins are now that, that much more severe. So... They're saying, look, it's your, your shares have plummeted in value. They're no longer good as collateral. So a lot of these guys are just rejecting uh, Adani bonds as collateral. They, they think it's worthless. Standard Charters has decided not to accept Adani bonds, and so has Credit Suisse and an American firm. I forget which one. For those of us who want to see Modi brought down, does this contribute to that aspiration? It's hard to say, actually, Doug, because Modi almost seems to be wearing a Teflon coat, right? That's what I meant by this peculiar dialectic that the more discredited this party seems to get in terms of its non-performance, not living up to its promises and so on, and the kind of potential disillusionment that would spread in the public, the more fanatical becomes the cult of their leader. It's a very strange effect, but they rally even more around him when he's in a, in a situation of this sort. So that's another ball game entirely. When you talk about politics and ideology and culture and what makes people vote one way or the other, I don't think these kinds of economic shocks translate in any simple way into political outcomes. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen like that. His credibility has been shaken and, and the credibility of, of a major corporate group has been severely jolted. But whether in the end that's going to yield uh, any sort of political dividend is anyone's guess because it requires a whole lot of intermediary steps before that kind of uh, translation of e economics into politics occurs. I'm not sure it's going to work in that way necessarily, but the opposition has been trying its best to say that insurance policyholders and depositors in the state bank and all have been, their interests have been sacrificed to the Adani empire and, um, and that this is outrageous. The line they've been taking is that it's the savings of, of the large swathe of the public that are, that are at risk and so on. But I think they should stick to the demand for a JPC probe. And if it's not granted, then they can go for something in the, with the Supreme Court. 
an investigation by some retired judge who's reliable and not suborned and so on. You know, a reliable a retired Supreme Court judge could conduct a similar investigation. What needs to be investigated is the money laundering network, really, because that will blow a huge hole through this whole thing. Ravi Nair wrote a, a young journalist wrote a two-part article in 2021 in, in a, on a website called Adani Watch, uh, exposing the entire, this network, this murky network of Mauritius shell companies and so on. And he was threatened with arrest. You know, within two weeks of those articles appearing, he was threatened with arrest. And there's a gag order against him. There's a gag order, order against a fellow journalist, colleague of his called uh, Paranjoy Guha Sakurta. Uh, so Adani hits back in this. He's a bully. He's a huge bully in this respect, you know. He just thinks he can intimidate people into submission. You know why this money laundering side is so important is that it directly links Adani to a whole milieu of scamsters through two particular corporate service providers, one called Monterosa and one called Amicor. Amicor has offices in Cyprus and the Mauritius and Bombay. Monterosa is basically Zurich-based. Uh, it's run by a guy, or the CEO used to be a guy called Guggenbuhl Avon. Now, this guy has close links with people like Jatin Mehta, who is this diamond scamster who fled from the country around 2012, whose son is married to Gautam Adani's niece, right? Jatin Mehta's son is married to Gautam Adani's niece. Um, so they actually have uh, family ties as well. Now, these are, and then there are the Sandesaras. Monterosa is also connected with the Sandesaras. So you have a corporate service provider, so called, i.e., someone who helps you to loan the money, who in turn, integrates or brings Adani into a network of scamsters who have by and large fled the country, who are no longer operating here. This is the milieu that we're talking about. It's largely a, a Gujarati milieu, because Jatin Mehta's Gujarati, he was a diamond merchant. Uh, the Sandesaras are a Gujarati family, they're oil traders, currently living anywhere in, I don't know, Albania or something. And then Ketan Parikh himself has relocated his business. He's again Gujarati, he's relocated his business to London. He's rigging the Indian market from London. That was Jairus Bonacci, a professor of development studies at SOAS, the University of London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this some of Identity Crisis from the new album Pedals by the Jordanian producer, DJ, and sound designer Tumba. Till next week, bye. <laughs>